0: Henna is an American girl who grew up in a Pakistani Muslim family in the suburbs of Dallas, Texas. Henna's childhood and her adolescence was a mix of feeling loved and accepted by her family and her Muslim community and really wanting to fit in with her public school classmates, none of whom prayed five times a day or had to miss the homecoming dance because it fell on one of the most important nights of Ramadan. Now in her mid 20s and studying policy at the London School of Economics on a grant from Rotary International, it seems as though Henna feels close to her faith and to her, her identity beyond that faith in equal measure. Henna is the first woman that we've profiled on the Hijabi Diaries who is a practicing Muslim but who doesn't wear the hijab. We'll talk about all this and more on the Hijabi Diaries. The Sisters of the Islamic Center of Bloomington invite you to explore hijab from a personal perspective. We want to share the importance of hijab, why we choose to wear it, and what it means to us, in the hopes that by listening to our stories, you will come to better understand who we are as Muslims, women, and humans. The Hijabi Diaries. Muslim women speaking for themselves. It's Ramadan 2019, and you are listening to The Hijabi Diaries. I'm Aubrey Cedar. It's May in London, and the days get longer fast as the summer solstice approaches. What London lacks in summer heat waves and consistent sunshine, it definitely makes up for in daylight hours. It's been sunny and clear skied for the past four days here, and sunlight streams through my window every morning by about 4.50 a.m. Henna is here to tell me that it's actually rising a lot earlier than that. She knows. She's up every morning before 3 a.m. for Ramadan. Henna is on break from classes at the moment. She's studying for exams. That's right. She is studying for exams during Ramadan and she isn't doing either thing halfway. Henna takes me through her daily routine for Ramadan in the UK.
1: So you start the day, okay. Kind of depends on what you consider the start of the day. I think that's subjective based. A lot of us, the days are really short. The The days are really long and the nights are really short and the nights feel like the day for Muslims who are fasting. Um, but so basically I try to go to bed by like 1 a.m. Pretty difficult sometimes. Sometimes I don't. Um, but yeah, so you – Try to sleep for a couple of hours because you have to generally wake up, at least in London, by 2.45, 3 o'clock because you have to be finished eating. If you, so we generally wake up for Suhoor um, to eat something before the start of the fast. And the start of the fast right now is around 3.25. Um, London is insane. And the start of the fast will be like at 2.30 by the end of the month, which I'm like, oh, my goodness, um, not used to where I'm from in Texas, near the equator, like pretty level. Um, so wake up around like 2 45 3 o'clock I force myself to eat something some people are much better about this personally I just like eat a banana and a granola bar and try to call it a day and then I try to if I have some time I try to spend some time reading passages of the Quran and then you'll do the morning prayer of the day and then usually just because you probably haven't gotten that much sleep you'll try to go back to bed um and then when I wake up I because I have to still do school and work I try to do that in the morning and then at least for the the next few prayers you kind of just intersperse them in the day when you get a chance right so those are at 1 and then like 5/6 respectively um and then uh and then it's iftar time basically and so around 8:30 almost 9 here now um, long days but so probably spent an hour getting ready for iftar i I've, I've tried to cook more which is like not typical of my life and so with Ramadan I'm like oh but I need like the good food so I'm gonna like try to make something so I spent about an hour like a- figure out how I'm going to make something and I try to make something and then I've actually been really lucky I have a lot of friends who have like joined me for a thaw up to this point so doing that and then it's a really short time period between then and when you have to leave for the mall so I, I haven't gone to Thravi every single night but I try to go as many nights as I can so it's probably been about like half or a little more than half the tights now um so basically fast breaks right now at 8 45 and I probably have to like leave by 9 15, 29 30 and that includes like eating praying mugger prayer and like getting ready to go to the mosque hopefully drinking coffee like all of that and then getting on a bus or a tube to go to the mosque and then go to the mosque and that Um, takes about an hour, hour and a half, like at the mosque, which is like the Tharavi prayer and the night prayer and then coming home. And then if I'm still awake at that point, I might do a little bit more studying, might read a little more about the Quran, hopefully. And then, um, oh, and then I've been listening to a podcast that's like from a, a a nice little, um. It's a uh, it, it's a thing called Roots. I used to go to in Dallas, which was started by um, Sheikh Abdul Murphy and the Cullum Institute. And basically it's like a nice open space where basically they have a lot of like community sessions where Muslims learn more about their faith. And they used to do this. They continue to do this young professionals um, talk every Monday. And it's really amazing. Really, really cool. So I listen to that podcast on my way back and forth from from Tharabi, which is nice. And then go back to sleep. <laughs> it's kind of the day. So I was born in Florida, but I only lived there until I was about two. And then my family and I moved to a suburb of Dallas, Texas called Irving. Um, it is a nice little suburb over by the airport. I don't really know. It doesn't really have any other defining characteristics, but that is where I've basically been for most of my um schooling years and then also I did my undergrad in Dallas as well now if you go to Dallas or Irving it's it's a very strong Muslim community they actually just opened up a massive mosque outside of my high school and um, my old high school which is really interesting because when I was in high school I was maybe one of three Muslims at my school and the other one was my sister so not a huge Muslim community so I was always sort of not I mean I, I think I always sort of knew I was different right and I think you constantly um are trying to sort of like become a part of the fold, right? I mean, I remember like Ramadan used to fall during homecoming season and I was on drill team in high school. So it was like sorting out how to like break my fast on the sidelines of a football game, right? Like things like that. And so I think growing up was like, I, I've been very blessed in the sense that I haven't really seen so much of the the sort of Islamophobia and other things that have come sort of to be rampant. But I, I you could always, you always knew that you had to somehow sort of adjust or, or you know, or know that you were coming from a different perspective and a different background. And, and now I think kids growing up in my neighborhood probably see a little bit less of that because i just grown more diverse over the last couple of years. But I definitely felt that a little bit. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of, I guess, a broad sense of what it felt like growing up in the state. Like
0: many people who grew up Muslim, Hannah made a transition from practicing Islam because her family practiced it to practicing because the practices were meaningful and important to her own spiritual life. She can identify two moments in her life when she felt her connection to her faith deepen.
1: Yes, so definitely. So we started going to Islamic school when we were five on like after school and then like on Sundays as well. Um, It was actually went to quite a small mosque that was predominantly Pakistani, was basically just like starting up, right? I mean, um, and so we always were learned, like we learned how to read the Quran at a young age. We were told to like stop and pray and even like on those nights when I was had like football games and stuff. Right. So if it, if it happened to fall on or like the homecoming dance would sometimes fall on the 27th night of Ramadan, which is considered to be sort of Layl to qadr And is a very sort of, um, important night for Muslims. And it's a night that you're supposed to be praying all night. So like I couldn't go to homecoming those nights. Right. Like I'd have to, or I'd have to like somehow like not go to the game and like go to the, like, I, you know, and so definitely, um, I had never really had a ton of Muslim friends going up. Like I mentioned, my high school didn't have a ton of Muslims. And so I was constantly just trying to like fold back into the fabric of sort of what was normative culture. Um, and then when I went to my undergrad, which does not also have a huge Muslim community, but the Muslim community there is extremely close-knit, um, and my sister had been, like, really active in the Muslim Student Association, and she's two years older than I am, so that was, like, the first thing I did. The first Friday, I went to the MSA, and I was, like, wow, I just, like, love this group of people, and so when it became, like, much more comfortable and much more natural, that's, like, when I really started to own it, and I remember, like, so back then, so this was 2012, I guess, the, fir- the Ramadan um, of that year was, like, in the summer, so we were back home, and that was like the first time I was like, "Wow, like I like really get the importance of this, right? Like it'd been a year of sort of learning about my faith, going more comfortable with it, whatever, and so then I think that was like truly a signifier, and then I think also after so that I mean I went to undergrad in Dallas, I was living on campus, but I was still close to home. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of this like, like all those transferable properties. But I remember when I moved to Kosovo, like that was also big for me because like the first time where I was like, oh, like I'm on my own here. This is like a predominantly Muslim country, but also like it's up to me, right?
0: After finishing her undergraduate degree, Hena moved to Kosovo for a year to teach English in two schools, an Islamic religious school for girls and a Catholic school. Her relationship to her identity as a Muslim woman who at this point had never worn hijab outside of the mosque was impacted and very nearly changed by her time there.
1: Yeah, so I was, when I was in Kosovo, I was actually placed to be an English teaching assistant at an all-girls Islamic school. Well, they had a guy side too, but I was teaching all girls at a madrasa, right? So the girls there... Um, not all of them wore the hijab full-time, but they all would wear it during school hours, and then they were learning Islamic subjects as well, sort of the 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 normal. And I remember my first couple weeks there, right? I had asked the professor I was teaching with, I said, hey, like, I'm Muslim as well, so I don't mind wearing a hijab to class if you want me to. And she was like, no, 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 it's not a big deal. Like, we do have a couple of female professors who also don't wear the hijab, and, like, we don't expect it of you. So I didn't, you know? And I was dressed fairly conservatively, but I was still wearing, like, business pants and, like, sweaters, right? I mean, um and I remember my students being really confused if I was Muslim or not right like and it was interesting because the embassy had placed me for my time there at a Catholic school and an Islamic school really weird dynamic right so the other school I was teaching at part-time was run by three priests and so they were like are you Catholic or you Muslim like we don't understand I think part of that was they never met someone who was an American Muslim number one right um but also potentially like do do i dress the right way or like do i you know um you know they didn't always see me pray of course but that was just because i i didn't always pray in front of them right um and so i think there was a lot of questioning of that of like um from my students at least and then on the other side right um so it has got a really interesting sort of, if you look into the history of it, right, the the sort of cultural and religious dynamics that are at play there since sort of the war and before that. Um, so in one bubble, right, the Islamic community bubble that I was in, there was this like, oh, are you Muslim enough, right, because of where you come from? Do you know enough? And then the other angle, right, if I would potentially start maybe, I there was a point where I was thinking about starting toward the hijab, right, and so I bought all the like nice flowy dresses. I bought the scarves when I was like walking home from night prayer. I would keep my scarf on just to like practice it out. Right. And the reactions you would get from some people were a little bit like, why are you doing this? Right. Like, why are you becoming so conservative? Um, So it's like this complete polarization of two completely different concepts all in one very small like country. So I definitely saw all of it, which in some ways like made me only like, stronger and like affirm my own like beliefs in my faith and the way that i've chosen to practice um but also like really makes you think about what the muslim community should be doing in terms of like sort of settling these like long hold debates that people get really charged up about
0: while henna was in kosovo she was deciding whether or not to wear the hijab full time she had grown closer to her faith while living in a muslim majority nation she would also watched her female students, many of them just teenagers at the time, put up with bigoted harassers who could have scared them into removing their headscarves to maintain their safety, but who didn't, because they wanted to uphold this commandment of their faith. She thought, if they can do this, then surely I can too. But then, near the end of her stay in Kosovo, there was a moment that drove her back into doubt.
1: I wouldn't say, like, the journey has ended, right? So I think that's that's probably a piece of this. But basically, in that moment, what had happened was there was a summer school that I was thinking about volunteering at, and I had an interview with them when I didn't wear the hijab. So then – um they came back and they're like, hey, we're doing another session. Like, would you like to join? And I said, hey, like, I'd be open to it, but just wanted to check. Like, I might start wearing the hijab in the next week. Like, would that be a problem for you all? And she said, yes, like, we respect, like, Islam and, like, what the hijab means. But, like, it would be a problem for some of our parents so like you can't do this and that's like actually like a, a very common sentiment in Kosovo where a lot of schools and stuff are kind of anti the hijab and I was like oh my goodness and I think I was just not a hundred percent there and then she did that and I was like this is going to be too much for me and I'm not going to be able to handle this so I was like I'm gonna wait till I get home because basically it was June or July and I was moving back to the U.S. in July or August Um, and yeah and then I think I went back to the States and it kind of just I, – I have to like, – I'm still thinking about it, you know, but I think that was – that sort of really, like, um complete opposite and, like, not, like, very positive um experience of hearing someone say that that would completely change, like, how they would perceive me, I think just, like, sat in my mind pretty strongly. Um, and I was like, I need to be in an open and inclusive environment before I go this full ride in In
0: your opinion or, like, in how you've seen it be used – and how you've read about, you know, the hijab, what's, what is its religious purpose to you?
1: Like, yeah. like when you, as you understand it. Different ways to look at it, but I, I remember when I was, I think the one that stuck with me the most to some extent, right? Um, when I was thinking about wearing the hijab, I was reading about someone who basically was like, look, like, why do you wear the hijab? And she's like, I do it because like, I like fully believe in this faith and it's something that was like written in the Quran. So like, if I'm going to do this, like, if I believe in God and like God's will, then like, this is then this is something I'll do right and I think to an extent that's kind of powerful and the extent that it's a daily reminder of who you are and like what your faith is and what your beliefs are right because like you wear the hijab and you can't forget that and I have so much respect for women who wear the hijab right because especially if you live in certain countries like it is not easy to wear the hijab right like you can never forget that's what you're doing Uh, but you also never forget why you're doing it right you remember like that this is this is because like I fully believe in God and like um this is important to me and this is important to like my faith. And I think, so I think that's like one of the reasons that is really resonating with me among of course the others, right? Hannah keeps up
0: with her daily and weekly prayers most of the time. But when we were talking about her experiences being an American Muslim in the UK, an American Muslim woman of Pakistani heritage who doesn't wear the hijab. She told me about an experience about a year ago at a London mosque that really shook her and kept her from using public mosques around London during
1: prayers. Basically what happened was I first my first time entering a mosque in the UK was before I started studying here. I came to visit. I was on my way to a work trip in Europe and so I stopped in London for a day because I I had a good idea that I was going to end up at LSE. Um so I came and visited for a day and I was with a friend who's a local from here and he was like, "Hey, like let's go check out this mosque," which was which was um in east in in West London, he's like, it's like sort of the central mosque and it's beautiful. And I think you'd love to see it. So I had a scarf with me that day, but I didn't have like, um, I was wearing like jeans and a t-shirt and a jacket. So it was like fully covered, but like, probably not my ideal mosque wearing outfit like on a regular day I probably wouldn't wear that to the mosque but I was like I'm visiting it's like not really prayer time like I'll just go um and I had a really negative experience with a lot of women like getting pretty upset with me right so I I went upstairs to just check the woman's prayer and one woman first was like oh you have to pray if you come to this mosque which I had literally just I went to to Friday prayer Ma prayer at LSE so I was like hey I just prayed she's like no no you have to pray again I was like okay like and then another woman when I was walking out, she was like, I don't mean to offend you. And I was like, oh, this is going to be offensive, right? She was like, you should wear a long girl shirt. And I was like, I get it. But like also like there's there's ways to do it. But it all hit home when I was like downstairs and this woman like literally came up to me and started was like, it was like, a, it was a screaming match. And I was like really uncomfortable, but it became this whole thing of like, she got mad at me because I was with a guy. She got mad at me because um I, she thought my clothes were too tight. She started like, when I said I was from America, she was like, I don't believe you. Like, where are you really from? Like, where are your parents from? Like, it just, like, brought all these issues to light. And it was really embarrassing, right? I was getting screamed at in a mosque, which is, like, not supposed to be the case. So basically, it took me about another year to step into a mosque in the UK, to be completely fair. And I only did it because it was Ramadan. Um, and I know a lot of women will, this this is much more of a bigger issue for them as they live here, right? I The first night of Ramadan, I actually went to a mosque really close to my apartment because I'd been told they had a woman's space. And I went upstairs. And so this, at this point, though, I'm full – like, I'm dressed, right? I got my hijab on. Like, I got my – I got my, like, loose dress on. Like, I'm ready for this. And – this man is, like, lets me come in and sit in the woman's prayer. But then two minutes before prayer, this other guy comes in and he's like, hey, like, I'm sorry, we actually can't accommodate women. And that's apparently, like, a really big issue here where, like, they have the space but they don't want you there or whatever. I don't really know what the issue is at hand. But that was also really embarrassing. So it took me another couple of days. And I I finally found Moz that um, – I have found to be better um, and like that I've enjoyed, and that have like proper facilities for women and are a bit more welcoming. Um, but I do like I don't take the risk of not dressing properly. Like I will say, like I wear the. I've
0: been to a mosque myself. in my own neighborhood next to the Shepherd's Bush Market, and I've sat in the women's prayer space during evening prayers. Henna's right. Because it would be more accurate to say that I squished myself up against the wall so that I was not in the way of the five women praying in a space that was no bigger than a twin bed. This space was separated from the men's prayer hall, an area at least ten times the size of the one we were smushed into, by a heavy curtain. The women were all very kind and friendly to me and to my friend who was there to pray, even though I was wearing jeans, and they bade me stay when I tried to exit the space to give them some more room. It all seemed unfair and completely unlike the atmosphere of the Bloomington Masjid. Luckily, Hannah has found some spaces to pray at LSE and found privacy and peace in praying in her own home. Hannah talks to me about how political elections, including the upcoming American presidential elections in 2020, are confusing and sometimes disempowering to many Muslims in the United States. Muslim Americans can find that their beliefs do not fit squarely within the Republican or Democratic Party interests, and that very few candidates, when given the opportunity, really want to learn about Islam or to understand what American Muslims need from their government.
1: Personally, and like, hope maybe others, I think, are looking for someone who, like, is um open to listening, right? I think there's a lot of concept of, like, a lot of candidates right now in the race, at least if we're talking about the big race, like, are obviously, like, not Islamophobic and do believe in equal rights, right? But do they really know how to get there? Probably not, right? I mean, there are no Muslim candidates running for president, at least, right? So, like um so listening and like including us in the dialogue and being a part of that but also like I think just like um and standing up for what's right right I think there's a lot of like we're seeing this right now with a lot of like like Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib right a lot of people are skewing their words and sort of painting this rhetoric that they're actually like anti-semitic right and so I think we're looking for candidates who are gonna like understand that there's often like a like these are really like con- like hard to talk about topics right like r- like we no Muslim is expecting like us like our government to sort of start adjusting to Muslim beliefs, right? I mean, it, it, like it, it's just like but how do you sort of have that conversation in a real and authentic way and like make us know that you really do believe and you understand the faith and what that means and not are just like trying to buy the votes, of course, and that's for any group that is sort of seen as a voting block, um sort of how do we change the narrative I think um at least from a perspective of like, how do we share that a lot of the things that people claim are Islam are not necessarily, but also, like, why is it that if a Muslim woman says something against a certain state that she's on, like, anti-Semitic, like, why are we all, like always putting minorities against minorities, right? Like, that's not a thing we need to be doing. And, and doing that in a genuine sense, I think that's going to be really important as well. And, I mean, just because you
0: do, you are studying social policy and you're working with these companies and you've worked with these companies in consulting and stuff, what do you think makes, makes a leader, what do you think these conversations look like or these leaders look like when they're coming to a community to say, teach me how to represent you and yeah. teach me teach me what I need to know in order to represent you like what are those questions that you would have them ask or yeah. what are those things that you would help have them do again and again
1: the the leader should first like sort of be listeners right so like asking questions is of course really important right but they shouldn't be the one setting the agenda for the day right if you want to go visit a mosque like have a Muslim set up the schedule for you and ideally meet with Muslims who are both sort of imams maybe or hafizis or also like someone like myself who might just be working with the youth or might just be coming up, right? Meeting at mosque, meeting at Muslim community centers, meeting MSAs, right? At universities. I think that's also really important, right? Because I think the perspective you're going to get is completely different to some extent, right? Um, having the people you're meeting with driving that agenda to some extent, right? And then asking the, like, authentic questions. And I think, I think one thing is, like, I have a lot of friends who will be like, sorry for my ignorance if they don't know something about Islam. And I'm like, actually, it's like, I get it, right? Like, I don't know that much about every other faith. I don't know the daily intricate practices. So not feeling bad about asking the basic questions, right? Like, why do you pray five times a day? Or, like, what is Ramadan all about? Like, I don't understand. Like, what do you gain from not drinking water, not eating all day? Um, So even asking those simple questions just to get, like, a better forbearance. I would love – I mean, I would love to see, like – leaders who are sort of engaging it was in the open iftar that i was talking about that to london it's cool because basically every night they have a speaker and a lot of them have been like non-muslims who like work at local companies or things like that and so they've come and they don't know that much about islam before that but they've learned just being there right and being a part of that community and like just genuine like sharing a meal with someone like i, I don't think it needs to be this sort of really big diplomatic thing, right? And I think that also ruins it, right? When you're like, oh, let's have all the press come. Like, let's make this, like, a huge scene, right? Like, XXX candidate visited XXX mosque, right? Like, if you're going to do it for the genuine sake, right? Like, do it in a way that's sort of just, like, natural and, like, you're just part of the conversation, especially if you don't know that much, right? I mean, I'm sure there's candidates who know a lot about Islam um, or leaders in every say- ways you do, right? Um, So I think there's just... Yeah, asking the simple questions and, and wanting to genuinely learn more and like letting people tell you what they think is important.
0: We go on to talk about Ramadan a little bit more. And Hannah says that at the end of Ramadan every year, she feels fresh, a little more enlightened, a little more close to God and a little stronger in her faith and just in her day-to-day life. Then we talk about something that I felt like our entire conversation has revolved around without ever addressing. And that is the cultural context that we live in while we're practicing our faiths and how those contexts affect our practice. Cultural contexts have been the culprits behind many horrifying incidents throughout history. Just this week, a woman, a former broadcaster, was murdered in broad daylight on the streets of Afghanistan for her outspoken support of women's education This happened in a Muslim-majority nation, when the Qur'an requires all practitioners, male and female, to pursue knowledge their entire lives, for the betterment of themselves and for others. Similarly, cultural context has been the culprit behind Christian churches rejecting members of the LGBTQ community, when the New Testament clearly asks us to love our neighbor as ourselves. So, what do we do? people like henna and i to continue our faith practices and cultural contexts that may or may not accept us that may or may not accept the way that we want to be and want to practice that can bar us from practicing or at least make it really hard the way that those women at the london
1: mosque did for henna and i think there's a lot of cultural context that have a lot of implications right i think one is we're seeing sort of a lot of youth being, like, very anti-religion, right? Whereas sometimes, like, churches and mosques and other things have a really important role to play in, like, social policy, right? They they provide homes for people who are searching for homes. They often hand out food. Like, they sort of have a lot of charitable giving that goes on, right? Like, they're a key part of the state. Like, in no, like while we don't need to conflate them with, with the government, right? Like, churches and community centers and religious centers often fill in gaps at local levels where, like, the state didn't, right? Or the market didn't, when you think about it from a social policy perspective. Or where, like in big cities where, like, neighbors used to be able to, like, help their neighbors who were struggling, like, maybe they can't do that anymore, but a religion center might, right? And that could be from a religious perspective or just offering help to anyone who needs it. Um, Like, I know, like, in Assam, at least, like, we have to give 2.5% of our savings to, to charity, right? Like, that is not a not sizable, like, that's a lot of money, right? So if, if people are not wanting to accept the fact that, like, if we're, and then if we're constantly this conflict of, like, religion's bad and all these things, I think it just makes it really complicated for us to practice, for people to benefit from what the good things are of faith. And I've obviously no issue with someone who's not faithful, of course, but, um, and sort of conflate sort of the divides that we often see in our society. So um, it's just really problematic. I don't know how to fix it, right? I think it's a, it's a big issue of our time, but I do think you bring up a good point of, we've seen all the religions, and it's also like, with the spread of religion and sort of, globalization and and how sort of we see all this on social media and all this of course it's getting worse right but that's that's probably just because of the salience of the issue and how much we're seeing it too but yeah interesting conversation interesting topic <laughs> <laughs>
0: If you know of any organizations or campaigns looking to identify and support political candidates who care about the values and concerns of American Muslims, please let us know. We want to spread the word. And if no such platform exists, that sounds like something really cool that one of our listeners should start. Just saying. The Hijabi Diaries is produced in partnership with the Open Hearted Campaign to End Islamophobia. Our executive producer is me, Aubrey Cedar, with help from WFHB news director Wes Martin. And our co-producer is Anna Mighty. The music you heard on this episode is by Baraka Blue. Check out our Facebook page for Ramadan crafts, books, meal inspirations this month, and throughout the entire year for profiles of amazing Muslim women. You can find episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and on our website at www.hijabidiaries.com. If you like listening to the podcast, please get onto iTunes and leave us a review. Reviews and ratings on iTunes help us move up in the charts, which helps more people find the podcast. We are so glad that you are listening, and we really hope that you are too. So tell other people about it. Thanks so much to Henna for sharing her thoughts today. Happy Ramadan, and as always, thanks to you for listening. prison.
1: May Allah increase you in your vision. May you find everything you've been missing. May you awake for prayer before the sun has risen.
0: When you speak, may your audience listen.